Open with me in your Bibles to the book of Daniel, chapter 2. Suppose I came up to you and insisted that you listen to my fascinating account of last night's dream. You would probably listen with feigned interest and then think, so what? Dreams may have significance to the dreamer. They are considered important by the psychoanalyst, but few others would give them the time of day. However, in Scripture we find that God often spoke to people through dreams. Numbers chapter 12 and verse 6 says, If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I shall speak with him in a dream. You remember Jacob's dream in Genesis 28 when he saw what we call Jacob's ladder. Joseph had a dream in Genesis 37 that all the other sheaves in the field bowed down to his sheaf. And the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars bowed down to him. In 1 Kings 3, 5, we find that God spoke to Solomon in a dream, offering him whatever he wished. And Solomon asked for an understanding heart. But of all the dreams recorded in Scripture, there is none more amazing than the one recorded for us in Daniel chapter 2. And it's amazing for several reasons. Number, number one, because it's prophetic. Now, the simplest definition of prophecy is that it is history written beforehand. And this dream is amazing because it is prophetic. Secondly, it's amazing because it's so comprehensive. It lays out a picture of world history from the time of Daniel, 600 years before Christ, all the way through to the second coming of the Lord Jesus. And it's amazing also because of the recipient. It's not given to a faithful prophet. It's not given to a pious preacher. It is given to the most wicked, vile ruler on the earth at that time. It would be like God speaking to Adolf Hitler and telling him what was going to happen with the Berlin Wall and the demise of the Soviet Union and the coming of Christ. Now, the details of this dream begin unfolding in verse 31. We'll look at that next week. What I want to look at this morning is the circumstances that led up to the unfolding of that dream. And in these first 30 verses, there are two sections. The first is the confusion of the dream. The second is the character of Daniel. First of all, we see the confusion of the dream in verses 1 to 13. And here we're going to see four things that were brought about by this dream. Number one is distress in verses 1 to 3. Notice verse 1. Now, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was the ruler of the world. He was secure on his throne. All his enemies were subdued or in captivity. You would think that he would sleep like a baby. Maybe that's a bad analogy for those of us, you who have newborns. Let's say he, he would sleep like a cat on a thick pillow. But he had a royal case of insomnia. He tossed and turned in his bedchamber, and when he finally did fall asleep, we're told that he had a dream. Or as verse 1 specifically says, he dreamed dreams, which tells us that he had a series of dreams. However, it seems that it was just one dream repeated over and over again because when he gets to verse 3, he uses the singular, it was a dream. 
And this dream apparently was so bizarre and troubled him so much that he couldn't get back to sleep. Now let me add a footnote here. Verse 1 says this occurred in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar. That's a little bit confusing because we're told in chapter 1 that it was Nebuchadnezzar who brought Daniel into captivity. Daniel went through three years of training in Babylon, and now we're told at the beginning of chapter 2 that it's the second year of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, how can that be? You say, well, maybe this occurred during chapter 1. Maybe this is a flashback to earlier. Well, we might think that until we get to the end of chapter 2, and chapter 2 and verse 48 tells us that the king makes Daniel the ruler over the whole province of Babylon. So if that occurred before Daniel graduated, then chapter 1 and verse 19 doesn't make a whole lot of sense when Daniel graduates and the king puts him in his personal service. If he was already the ruler over the province of Babylon, then that would be senseless. So it's evident that what takes place here in chapter 2 had to happen after chapter 1. You say, well, then how do we explain this timing? Well, it's really very simple. We explain it by the fact that the Babylonians reckoned the reign of a king differently than the Jews. When a king died and his predecessor took over, they didn't start measuring his years until the Babylonian New Year, which was equivalent to our April 1st. So the period when he fulfilled the previous year of his successor was not counted as a year of reign. It was referred to as his rise to accession, his year of accession. Nebuchadnezzar's father was a fellow by the name of Nabopolassar. He died September 7, 605 B.C. And so Nebuchadnezzar reigned for seven months before the Babylonian New Year when his first year actually began. It would be kind of equivalent to the, to the election we just had. We just elected Joanne Emerson to finish the last two months of the term of her deceased husband, we also elected her to a two-year term. Now, at the end of that two-year term, are you going to say she has been in office two years or three years? You see, the Babylonians would say two years. The Jews would say three years. Now, I say that because critics come to the book of Daniel and they look at this dating and they say, that's an error. But what's happening here is simply that Daniel is dating his book according to the Babylonian way of reckoning. In fact, if you go back to Daniel chapter 1 and verse 1, it says it was the third year of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and Daniel doesn't give us the year of Nebuchadnezzar because this was his year of accession. If we translated that into Jewish reckoning, it would be the fourth year of Jehoiakim and the first year of Nebuchadnezzar. Now hold that in your mind and look at Jeremiah chapter 25. Stay with me on this. Jeremiah 25, verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. See, Daniel says it was the third year of Jehoiakim. Jeremiah says it was the fourth year. The critics say, aha, there's an error in the Bible. But what's going on? 
they are using two different systems of reckoning time because they were living in two different countries. And what's interesting is that if Daniel had wanted to line up with Jeremiah, he could have because Jeremiah wrote before Daniel did. In fact, when we get to Daniel chapter 9 and verse 2, we will find that Daniel was reading from the book of Jeremiah. So if he had wanted to line up his timing with Jeremiah, he could have done that, but he chooses to reckon the time according to the Babylonian method. So when we come to chapter 2 and verse 1, it's the second year of Nebuchadnezzar, but Daniel has already ended his three years of schooling when the dream occurs. You say, well, God has never spoken to me in a dream. Why would he choose to speak to a pagan king? Well, you know, it's not uncommon in Scripture. In Genesis chapter 20 and verse 3, we find that God spoke to Abimelech and said, don't touch Sarah, Abraham's wife. In Genesis 41, we find that Pharaoh had a dream. Seven fat cows and seven skinny cows. Seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. Why did God speak to Nebuchadnezzar on this occasion? Well, I think there's several reasons. Number one would be that Israel was morally and spiritually as bad off as the Chaldeans. If God was looking for a spiritual ruler, Jehoiakim was just as far away from God as Nebuchadnezzar was. But secondly, and more importantly, God is going to reveal through this dream the times of the Gentiles, which is the times of the Gentile nations that ruled, and Nebuchadnezzar is the first Gentile world ruler. And so it's fitting that he would speak to him with this dream that lays out the history or coming future history of the world empires. And then thirdly, of course, God used this event to elevate Daniel to a place of leadership in Babylon. And so he had to do that by speaking this dream to Nebuchadnezzar and having Daniel interpret it. Now, how did the dream happen? Look over at verse 28. It says at the end of that verse, This was your dream and the visions in your mind while on your bed. As for you, O king, while on your bed, your thoughts turn to what would take place in the future, and he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will take place. Nebuchadnezzar was lying on his bed thinking, you know, I'm not going to live forever. I wonder what's going to happen in the future. And when he went to sleep, God answered that question in the form of a dream. And Nebuchadnezzar apparently sensed that this was no ordinary dream by his reaction. He couldn't sleep for the rest of the night. And when the morning light came, it says in verse 2 that he gave orders to call in the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. He calls in his brain trust. Four areas of people. The first is the magicians. That's a word that comes from a root word that means pin. And some have assumed that this, therefore, means scholars. However, others believe it means fortune tellers. It's probably a combination of both. These were uh, part of the academic world and part of the occultic world combined together. Second group is conjurers. That means the astrologers, the stargazers, those who studied the horoscopes. The third group is the sorcerers. These would be like modern-day medians. Those involved in witchcraft. In fact, the Sumerian logogram of this word is the sign of death inside a mouth, which indicates the idea of those who spoke to the dead. And then the fourth group mentioned here is the Chaldeans, which would be the wise men. They were originally a group of people in southern Babylonia. 
fact, you remember that Abraham was from Ur of the Chaldees. These people were raised up through the kingdom and became the wise men, and so their name became associated with those of wisdom. And so Nebuchadnezzar says, get all those people who write the astronomical forecasts in the Babylonian daily news and get the psychic friends network on the line because I need them. Verse 3, I had a dream and my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. He's distressed. Second thing that happens is the dilemma in verses 4 to 9. Notice verse 4. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell the dream to your servants and we will declare the interpretation. Now let me add one other footnote. When it says here that they spoke in Aramaic, Daniel switches from writing in Hebrew to writing in Aramaic. You don't see this in the English version, but he writes in Aramaic from this point all the way through chapter 7. We're not told why. At that point, he switches back to Hebrew. Best explanation is that during this period of time, Daniel is talking about what's going to happen to the Gentiles. And so he chooses to use their language, the language he has studied for three years. And so when he reminds us they were speaking in Aramaic, he switches over to Aramaic and writes in Aramaic as long as he's writing about the Gentiles. And then in chapter 8, he switches back to concentrating on Israel and he switched back to Hebrew. Now, these wise men are pretty confident in verse 4. They come in and say, O king, live forever. You always had to say that to the king. But then they say, tell us the dream and we'll interpret it. Now, these fellows studied dreams. And the way they did that was that they would ask people to tell them what their dreams were. They would write them down. They would watch what happened to people. And if you said, I had dreams about cats all the time and you got run over by a chariot, they'd say, cats are bad. So they made a manual about dreams, trying to make some uh, relationship between them. And so they say to the king, tell us the dream. We'll look it up in our manual and we t we'll tell you what it means. Notice the king's response in verse 5. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, the command from me is firm... If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb and your houses will be made a rubbish heap. Now, some of your translations say the dream is gone from me. That would suggest that the king had a problem we often have. He woke up and couldn't remember what he dreamed. But the other possible translation here is the phrase, my word has gone forth. In other words, I'm not kidding. This is a command. And I read a great deal about this this week, and it seems that the linguistic argument favors the second interpretation, that he's saying, this is a command, and it's firm. And I think the context leans toward that inter interpretation or that uh, translation as well, because as we said earlier, this was not a one-time dream. This was a dream he had over and over again, so it's hard for us to imagine that he would actually forget it. And if he didn't know what the dream was, then how was he going to know they were right when they told him what it was? And some people argue that if Nebuchadnezzar had known what the dream was, he would have been anxious to tell his wise men. I think just the opposite. I think that he realized that this was such a significant dream that he was afraid to tell his wise men because he might get just a standard answer. So he says, I don't want you to be wrong on this interpretation, and the only way I can be sure you're right is if you tell me not only the interpretation, but the dream itself. And then he gives them a little bit of incentive. He gives them a threat and a promise of reward. 
First of all, the threat. He says, you'll be torn limb from limb. Now, that's not an idle threat. Gleason Archer says that they would take a person and tie his arms and legs to four powerful trees, temporarily tied together at the top by ropes, and then they would cut the ropes. And the person would be literally torn into four pieces. Now, whether the king was going to get, go to that much detail or not, we do know that the Babylonians were into cutting people to pieces. Because Ezekiel says in Ezekiel 16.40 about the Babylonians, they will stone you and cut you to pieces with their swords. So the first, or the first threat is you're going to be torn limb from limb. The second threat is your houses will be made a rubbish heap, literally a manure pile. We'll take you out and tear you into pieces, and then we'll turn your house into the community bathroom. That's what he's saying. We're always looking for more facilities. Having given the threat, he then gives a promise of reward, verse 6. But if you declare the dream and its interpretation, you will receive from me gifts and a reward and great honor. Therefore, declare to me the dream and its interpretation. This was not uncommon for a king. We find that Joseph was elevated because he told the interpretation. Mordecai was elevated by the king in the book of Esther. And later in this chapter, we'll see that Daniel was elevated and rewarded because of this. But you know, no matter how terrible the threats of punishment, and no matter how enticing were the promises of reward, the wise men were powerless. Look at verse 7. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell the dream to his servants and we will declare the interpretation. Their only resort is, come on, king, be reasonable. Tell us the dream. Now, this is another indication to me that Nebuchadnezzar hadn't forgotten the dream. Because if he had, there would surely be a wise man who would step forward and say, well, if he doesn't know what it is, I'm going to take a shot. I think you dreamed something about falling, you know, or whatever. But they don't do that because they know that Nebuchadnezzar knows. So they're left to say, please tell us what it is. His response, verse 8, the king answered and said, I know for certain that you are bargaining for time. You're buying time, hoping that I'll cool off, hoping that I'll change my mind. I won't. Inasmuch as you have seen that the command from me is firm, that if you do not make the dream known to me, there is only one decree for you, and that's the decree back in verse 5. You're going to be torn limb from limb, and your house turned into an outhouse. For you have agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the situation is changed. Nebuchadnezzar apparently didn't put a whole lot of stock in his wise men, because on this occasion he accuses them of consenting together to lie to him. And then he gives his reason at the end of verse 9. Tell me the dream that I may know that you can declare to me its interpretation. See, it's not because he forgot. It's because he wants to be certain that they have the right interpretation. So there's the test. You tell me the dream, and then I'll know that your interpretation is right. That's the dilemma. And these wise men are shaking in their sandals. Which brings us to the third point, the deficiency in verses 10 and 11. Verse 10, the Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who could declare the matter for the king, 
inasmuch as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magician, conjurer, or called in. In a last-ditch effort, they resort to excuses. Nobody on earth can do this, and no king has ever asked his wise men to do such a thing. Verse 11, Moreover, the thing which the king demands is difficult, that is, it's rare, it's unheard of, and there is no one else who could declare it to the king except God's, whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. It's impossible. Only the supernatural could accomplish this task. These men are admitting their deficiency. We can't do it, and nobody else can. Which brings us to the decree, verses 12 and 13. Because of this, the king became indignant and very furious and gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. The king goes from being distressed to being furious. And he gives orders to destroy them all. Destroy all the wise men in Babylon. Now, when he says in Babylon, he's talking about in the city because later in this chapter, verse 49, he refers to the nation as the province of Babylon. Kill all the wise men in the city, verse 13, so the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain and they looked for Daniel and his friends to kill them. Daniel and his friends just graduated into this group. What a break. And they're apparently considered apprentices at this point in time because they didn't come in the first time, but they do get the sentence of death. So there are wanted posters all over Babylon with Daniel's picture on it. Which brings us to the second section that I want to look at this morning, and that is the character of Daniel in verse, verses 14 to 30. This is quite a setup. The wise men say it's impossible, nobody can do it, it takes the supernatural, it's beyond us, and the stage is set for Daniel to shine. And what we're going to see in these verses is what we see over and over again in Daniel, and that is his character coming forth. And his character on this occasion is going to come forth in a time of crisis. I can't think of a worse crisis than an angry monarch. And we're going to learn six things about Daniel that are six characteristics that we also need in times of crisis. First of all, Daniel was composed. Verse 14, Then Daniel replied with discretion and discernment to Arioch, the captain of the king's bodyguard, who had gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. He answered and said to Arioch, the king's commander, For what reason is the decree from the king so urgent? Then Arioch informed Daniel about the matter. Bad news traveled fast, and Daniel heard that he was a wanted man. And you can imagine the panic and the turmoil, wise men fleeing all around. But Daniel was cool, he was calm, he was composed. Arioch, the captain of the bodyguard, literally, he is the captain of the executioners. He comes in to drag Daniel off, and what does Daniel do? Daniel engages him in a conversation. Daniel says, why is the decree so urgent? Come over here, Arioch, sit down, let's talk about it. Now, that's pretty impressive to me. Arioch comes in, here's a man who is condemned to death, and yet he takes the time to have a conversation with him. What's that tell us about Daniel? See, Daniel won the heart of Ashpenaz in chapter 1. He gained the confidence of his small group overseer, and now we see that he disarms Arioch. What a guy. Right in the midst of crisis, he's composed. How do you do in crisis? 
Are you composed? You know, if you can't stay composed in crisis, you'll have trouble ministering. Because one of the most effective places to minister is right in the middle of a crisis. Daniel was a man who was composed. Second thing we see about his character is that he was courageous. Verse 16, So Daniel went in and requested of the king that he would give him time in order that he might declare the interpretation to the king. Now remember, Daniel is 17 years old. He goes in before Nebuchadnezzar, who is foaming at the mouth. In verse 14, he says to Arioch, Why is the king so urgent? And Arioch must have told him it's because his wise men were stalling for time. So Daniel goes in and asks for what? Time. That takes courage. And what happens? The king gives him time. Why? We're not told. The only indication is back in chapter 1 and verse 20 where the king noticed that Daniel was ten times wiser than all the other wise men. And so he trusts him with time. Third characteristic of Daniel is that Daniel was confident. Isn't it kind of presumptuous for Daniel to walk into the king and say, I want a little more time? That's assuming that he's going to be able to come up with a dream. Now, why does Daniel respond that way? Well, I think there's several reasons. Number one, because he had proven God faithful before. Back in chapter 1 and verse 12, he said, feed us vegetables for 10 days and then test us, and we'll be healthier than the other guys. Who was he depending on? He was depending on God. You see, when you get a track record with God testing his faithfulness and finding him sure, it gives you confidence. Second thing about Daniel is that we know back in chapter 1 and verse 17 that he had been gifted by God in this area of dreams and visions. So he wasn't really confident in himself. He was confident in what God had given to him. And then the third reason he's confident is given to us right in this passage, and that is he was dependent upon God. Verse 17 says, Then Daniel went to his house and informed his friends Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah about the matter. He goes to other people, not to tell them his problems, but to recruit them to pray with him. They were his prayer partners. Verse 18, in order that we might request compassion from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his friends might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Daniel needed time not to look up the answers in the dream manual. He needed time not to study the stars. He needed time not to go find a psychoanalyst. He needed the time to do what we all need to do in a time of crisis, and that is to pray. Daniel might have said, well, it worked with the vegetables. It's surely going to work again. Why do we need to pray? Daniel might have said, well, I have the gift of dreams. Why do I need to pray? But see, rather than keeping Daniel from praying, it was those very things that encouraged Daniel if you notice the contrast with the Babylonian religion, they studied the heavens. Daniel and his friends went to the God of heaven. Are you confident in a time of crisis? You can be if, like Daniel, you enter it on your knees. Mary, Queen of Scots, said, I fear the prayers of John Knox more than an army of 10,000 men. Daniel understood that. And that's where he got his confidence. If you notice verse 19, it says, Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. 
In the middle of a night of prayer, Daniel got his answer. Which brings us to the fourth characteristic of Daniel. Daniel was careful. That is, he was careful to give God the glory. You know, I think if I had been Daniel, and I got the answer to this prayer in the middle of the night, I would have jumped on my donkey or chariot and raced immediately to the palace to tell the king. But what does Daniel do? Verse 19, Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. There's no time to spare, but Daniel takes the time to have a praise session before the Lord. And if you'll notice verse 20, it begins with interesting words. It says, Daniel answered and said. God answered Daniel, and now Daniel answers God. How often do we do that? When God answers us, do we take the time to answer him? How did Daniel answer God? By worship, by praise, by thanksgiving. And we have the words recorded for us here, beginning in verse 20. It says, Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. Daniel isolates two attributes of God, wisdom and power, omniscience and omnipotence. And then he illustrates them. First power, verse 21. And it is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. It's obvious Daniel is now thinking about the interpretation of the dream because it has to do with kingdoms and kings who are coming. And Daniel says, God, you are the one with the power to put those kings there and to take them away. And then he illustrates the wisdom of God at the end of verse 21. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. There is no wise men except the man that God gives wisdom to. Verse 22, it is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. God is the one who has the power to put kings in place. He's the one who has the wisdom to reveal that to men. Verse 23, to thee, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for thou hast given me wisdom and power. You've also displayed your wisdom and power by giving some of it to me, Specifically, he says, even now thou hast made known to me what we requested of thee, for thou hast made known to us the king's matter. Sometimes we end our prayers with these words, and God, I'll be careful to give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. You know what I've noticed? Sometimes when God answers our prayers, we aren't as careful as we said we were going to be. Daniel was careful to give God the praise. Which brings us to the fifth characteristic of Daniel. Daniel was compassionate. Verse 24. Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and spoke to him as follows. Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me into the king's presence, and I will declare the interpretation to the king. Now notice, Daniel is giving orders here. He has gotten his answer from God, and he is certain that it's the answer. I love this. He doesn't have to go in and confirm it with the king. He doesn't have to go into the king and say, was the dream something about a huge statue? No, God gave him the answer, and he is confident from the get-go. But notice also his compassion. Who does he go to first? He doesn't go straight to the king. He goes to the executioner and says, don't kill the wise men. 
Why? Because he cares about them. They're in the darkness, but Daniel has compassion for them, and so he stops the executioner before he goes to the king. Daniel was a man of compassion. And then the sixth characteristic we see is that Daniel was contrite in spirit. Notice verse 25. Then Arioch hurriedly brought Daniel into the king's presence and spoke to him as follows. I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can make the interpretation known to the king. Now, isn't that interesting? Arioch comes in smugly and says, I have found a man. No, he found you. But see, Arioch wants to take the credit. But what impresses me is what Daniel doesn't do here. Daniel doesn't say, wait a minute, I found you. If anybody's going to get credit, I ought to get credit. That's not Daniel. Because Daniel is contrite in spirit. Verse 26. Then the king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Notice verse 25. Arioch says, I got a man who can give you the interpretation. And the king is quick to say, can you give me the dream and the interpretation? And Daniel's response in verse 27 is, As for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. Your wise men were right. No man can declare this to you. However, verse 28, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. What man cannot do, God has done. And then he goes on to say in verse 28, This was your dream and the visions in your mind while on your bed. As for you, O king, while on your bed, your thoughts turn to what would take place in the future, and he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will take place. Now, that's got to be pretty impressive to the king. The king says, I want the dream and the interpretation. Daniel goes further than that and tells him what he was thinking about before he fell asleep. You were laying on your bed thinking about the future. You fell asleep, and the dream was an answer to that question. Now, up until this point, Daniel has not said anything about himself to the king, but he's about to in verse 30. And what would you expect him to say? I mean, we know that Daniel was good-looking, intelligent, ten times wiser than anybody else. He was spiritual. He has every human reason to be proud. But I want you to notice what he says in verse 30. But as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me more than in any other living man, but for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king and that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. This isn't based on any wisdom in me. I am simply a conduit by which God has made known his message to him. Isn't that refreshing? What a humble guy. He is contrite in spirit. And Daniel is expressing the attitude we all should have. I mean, if God can use a donkey to rebuke a money-loving prophet like Balaam, if he can use a raven to take fresh bread and meat to Elijah, if he can use a rooster to rebuke backsliding Peter, then why is it that we think we're so impressive when God uses us? You see, God doesn't need a great vehicle. It just takes a great God. And when we grasp that, we have grasped a lot. Daniel is a man for a crisis. 
He was rightly related to himself, rightly related to God, and rightly related to others. He was rightly related to himself in that he was composed and courageous. He was rightly related to God in that he was confident in God and careful to give him the praise. And he was rightly related to others in that he was compassionate and contrite in spirit. He loved them, and he didn't see himself as better than them. And that's the very reason why God used him. And God is looking for men and women with those same characteristics that he can use today. May God help us to be such people.